0: Well, where would we be without our moms? That's a pretty easy question, sort of a rhetorical question, right? Not here. Um, women play such a significant role in our lives. Um, and uh, we're, we're continuing this sermon series. It's called Everyday Disciple. And we're looking at everyday issues, things that we face every day that, that impact us as followers of Jesus. And so um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today. And I invite you to turn there. We'll be there in just a moment. Um, but here's a little secret about oh, something I've observed just in life and within the life of the church. We sort of make a bigger deal about Mother's Day than we do Father's Day. Like, have you noticed that? Am I the only one that, that has noticed that? Um, it's, we, ju- we just sort of make a bigger deal, especially around the church, uh, about Mother's Day than we do Father's Day. And I want to say I'm okay with that. I am happily deferring the celebration. Um, As I think about my mom, as I think about all that my wife does for our family, I'm happily deferring. And that's not because men play a lesser role in the rearing of children or in the family or any of that. Um, But I want to name something today. I'm going to defer because it is obvious that women have a set of expectations. They have some challenges that men don't face. I can name that today, right? It's pretty obvious. I think we can all agree on that, that there's this standard or there's some expectations of who a mom is supposed to be or what a mom is supposed to do that are pretty unfair. And that I became acutely aware of that when I became a father. I don't think I noticed it as much, but let me tell you what happened, and it kind of snapped into focus for me. So my boys uh, were four and one. They were pretty young at this point. And they were still in that stage of just really needing a lot of hands-on parenting. Um, really, really needy. Um, and uh, they've, they've, you know, moved on, I think. And, uh, but they were in that stage where you had to be very attentive to them. And, and you know, having a one-year-old at home has its own set of challenges. And uh, so Luca just turned one, and Lauren had an opportunity to get away for a weekend and be with some friends. And so I said, hey, I think we're at a point. I can watch, I can watch both kids. I'll be fine this weekend. You get away. You go do something fun with your friends, and I think I can hold the fort down from Friday to Monday. And so that was my plans, and uh, someone at our church at the time, we, we were pastoring in Texas. Someone at our church discovered that, that I was going to do this, that this was our plan, that I was going to oh my goodness, be at home with my kids, by myself, uh, for a a span of three days. And they said something (laughs) that you may laugh at. They said, oh, so you're babysitting this weekend. Some of you didn't laugh because you think it's normal. Uh, Or actually, it wasn't that funny. Um, Oh, you're babysitting this weekend. That's so nice. To which I replied, no, I'm not babysitting I'm doing this thing called being a father. Um, and it's not nice. I don't get extra credit for this. This is not some altruistic thing I decided to do because I'm such a great person. Um, this is the fulfillment of the promise that I made to my wife when we stood before a congregation of people. And we said, for better, for worse, and sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, we promised to be faithful to each other. And that included rearing children. Both of those children, or those children are both of our responsibilities. And so um, if I am in charge of them for a weekend, it's not because I'm such a great dad or a nice person. It's because they're my kids and it's my job. So then they said, I didn't say all that to them. um, So then they said, oh, can I bring you a meal Can I help you out?" Now what's interesting is I had gone away for conferences several times, and people knew I was away for the weekend. And Lauren was at home with a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Not one person said, Oh my gosh, can I bring you a meal? Like, what are you going to do with your kids all alone all weekend without your husband being there? No one said that, did they? But I said, yes, you may bring me a meal. (laughs) Since you offered, yes, you may bring me a meal. I will gladly receive that. Um, There are some ladies in the room that really relate to what I'm saying, and half the men do. Um, By the end of this sermon, all of the men will. Um, but, But you're exhausted with the expectations that are put on you. You're exhausted with... The, the things, the, 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 the impossible standards that are sometimes set for what it means to be a good mom. And there's a cartoonist, she illustrated this uh, in how people perceive motherhood versus fatherhood. And it's really insightful, and I want to share it today. I think it's going to help us understand some of the expectations that we that are put on us, all of us. This is an everyday issue, which is is why we're talking about it in this series called Everyday Disciples. Uh, Let's look at this first one. If you're a dad and you take your kid to the park, you get bonus points for this. Man, such a good dad out there at the park swinging with his kid. If you're a mom, that's just another day at the office. Yeah, you're at the park with your kid, It's just kind of another run-of-the-mill day. If you're in a park and you're pushing your toddler in a stroller and you're a dad and you pull out your phone just to check your email to make sure everything's okay, well, you get credit for being present because there you are. You're with your kid. But, boy, if a mom does that, look how inattentive she is. Doesn't she recognize her baby's right there? Why is she looking at her phone? You know, dad's had a long day at the office. Doesn't have time to come home and prepare a meal. And so you know what dad does? We're going to go by and get some fast food. Hey, got Chick-fil-A here, guys. Not only is it yummy, but it's Jesus chicken. Right? Fun dad walks in the door with Chick-fil-A. Mom had a meeting go late. Mom had several HR issues she had to deal with. It's been a really tough day. She had to let some people go. She doesn't have time to come home and make a meal. And so she grabs some Jesus chicken. But even with Jesus chicken, she's a lazy mom. Fun dad versus lazy mom. One more. Dad arranges his schedule so that he can drop kids off in the morning. Man, he's involved. He delayed his meetings so that he can drop his kids off. But when mom does that, she's put in a category called working mom. And somehow a working mom is in a different category than stay-at-home mom. And one category is revered more than the other in some ways. Man, you feeling that today? How many of you are, have lived that out and you've, you've seen that? I think we get the point. And, and, and we're not going to solve this imbalance. I wish we could. I wish we could solve this today. I wish there was a magic Bible verse I could take us to and, and, and we could solve it. Uh, But I, I share it with you as an illustration of the kinds of perceptions that our society and our culture puts on us. There are certain expectations of who we are supposed to be, what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live, what we are supposed to say. And everyone experiences that, male, female, mom, dad, married, single, old, young. We all have these expectations, and these expectations seek to define us. It happens every day. And so to be an everyday disciple, what does it look like to live on the expectations and to live into who God has declared for us to be? You know, the question for today is, I mean, who made up these rules? Who sets these standards? And Jesus asks one time, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that's actually a good question for us today as we think about these expectations because it's people saying certain things about your identity. Who do people say that you are? So Jesus has this conversation with the disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 16. He has this conversation with, with the disciples and it, and it begins this way. It begins with this question, who do people say that I am? Let's pick it up with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Several things going on in this passage, but, but primarily you see Jesus asking the disciples, okay, what are people's perception of me? How do people perceive me? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples reported to Jesus all the different things people were saying. They said, well, some say you're Elijah. You've come back. Elijah's come back because you're performing miracles just like Elijah did. You speak with authority just like Elijah did. There's other people that say, you know, John the Baptist was killed. He was beheaded. Jesus appears to be like John the Baptist reincarnate. John the Baptist has come back to life in this person of Jesus. Others are saying, you're like one of the prophets. You know how the prophets spoke reforms and they were trying to call the people back to this true worship of God? You have that prophetic ministry. You're like one of the prophets. And they had all of these categories, all of these boxes in which they were trying to fit Jesus. There was no box greater than Elijah. John the Baptist would be a very honorable expectation to try to live up to. One of the prophets would be a really great thing. But what was happening is is the people, they weren't sure exactly who Jesus was, and so they were grabbing at categories and expectations that they knew, that that was familiar to them. And if they could fit Jesus into this box called Elijah, Or if they could fit him into this box called John the Baptist, they would be able to expect what he was going to do next. They would be able to predict and control and manipulate what Jesus was going to do by fitting him in these categories that were known and familiar. Essentially, they were hoping to fashion Jesus in their image. And author and pastor, Kevin DeYoung, he's written a blog that's now become pretty popular. It's called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And he unpacks this passage a little bit, and he speaks to how we do the same thing. Like, we have these ideas of who we want Jesus to be and what we want Jesus to do. And, and we want our Jesus to fit in our little box and our little, our little expectation. We want him to check all these boxes and fit in this category, And we want him to do certain things for us. And he writes this. He says, How many people know the real Jesus? He said, There's Republican Jesus, who's against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, who heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be too hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for those who are not as open-minded as they are. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians. This Jesus determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, to imagine a world without religion, helps us remember that all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, to reach for the stars, to buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, He wants us to find the good within and listens to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus. This is the Jesus we find in Hallmark Christian Christmas specials and greeting cards and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, to stick it to the man, to dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you, helps you to find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become the best you that you can be. I think you see the point. We've got a lot of categories. Like in the first century, it was Elijah, John the Baptist, maybe it's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. We've expanded that a little bit. We've got all kinds of categories, all kinds of ways that we want to take the message and the influence of Jesus and the power of Jesus and use and exploit it for our own benefit. And friends, I think that you didn't get up and come to church this morning so that you could encounter any of those. Like, you came here for a fresh encounter with the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus that we proclaim as Savior and Lord. And this Jesus is not here to allow you to fashion Him in your image. This Jesus Jesus is here so that you might be fashioned in His image. So that you might be more like him. And what he demonstrates in his life, death, resurrection is is the way to conquer is the way of suffering. The the, the way to overcome the evil and the powers in the world is to lay down your power and to walk in obedience to the Father and to entrust your life to him. Jesus shows us the way of suffering, he shows us the way of the cross, he shows us the way that is so counter. To the ways of the, this world, it's counter to Republican Jesus and Democrat Jesus and all the other Jesuses I've listed today. This way of the cross is so counter to all of that, and He invites us to be formed in His image. And so that process begins with this question that Jesus asks the disciples, and He asks those disciples gathered here today the same question: Who do you say? That I am. We can stand here today and we can critique partisan Jesus and hippie Jesus and guru Jesus and Starbucks Jesus and all of them. But the real business that we need to get down to today is who do you say that I am? Who do you proclaim as Savior and Lord? Not surprisingly, guess who has the right answer? It's Peter. Peter steps up, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He makes two bold statements there. One is, of all that was prophesied about the Messiah in the the prophets, Jesus, you are the one. And then he goes a step further and he says, you are the son of the living God. There, you are divine. You are connected to the very life of God. There are so many reasons why this confession of Peter would get Peter in a lot of trouble with the religious leaders. He's blaspheming God by making this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth divine. But he's also grossly misinterpreted the Old Testament to think that someone from Nazareth would actually be the Messiah that God had promised. And so Peter makes this bold confession, a confession that will get him in trouble. But... I want us to see what happens when we make that confession of faith. Peter steps out and he he does something that potentially could get him in trouble, but it was the right answer. And, and, And look what happens. After he confesses the true identity of Jesus, he's changed. This is where Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter or Cephas. It means rock He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You see Peter being transformed? As Peter makes a decision to not fit Jesus into all the categories, but to confess him for who he is, it transforms him and it changes him. And friend, the the implication for us is clear today, that as we know this Jesus more, as we become more intimate with this Jesus, as we feast on his word, as we embrace this way of the cross, as we know Jesus more, we find our true identity in him. There are so many expectations that are put on you. There are expectations that are put on you at work. There are expectations that, put, that are put on you because of perhaps your gender. We've talked about those today. There's all these expectations of, of who you're supposed to be and, and what you're supposed to do and, and how you're supposed to live. But the call of the gospel is to get to know this Jesus and to allow all of those expectations to fall away and to find your identity in him. And when you rest and you trust in this identity as a child of God, redeemed by God, saved by God's grace, when you find and rest in this, all of those other things fall away and you become who you were originally created to be. Jesus said, you are Peter on this rock. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to do something amazing through your life. And you see this amazing thing happen in this passage. It begins with the expectations of all the people. It begins with the people trying to fit Jesus and to mold Jesus into their image. And it ends with Peter, who makes a confession of faith, being molded and shaped in the image of Jesus. And that same journey is the one that we are invited to go on today. So what does this look like in our everyday life? Like, what are forces or factors that keep this from happening? And I want to just pull out one, since we're talking about everyday issues. Um, I don't think we fully know yet how these little things have changed our life. Like, we're starting to kind of understand it. But, but walking around with these things in our pocket um, is having an effect on us, and I don't think we fully realize it yet. Some of us remember a life before these things. Some of us don't know what life is like without these things. Whether you had a life before these devices or if you've always known these devices We can agree on some things, and I want to to share with you at least one way I I think we need to be mindful of how we can be shaped and formed in ways that are contrary to who God wants us to be. Um, Primarily, we access social media through these little devices, and what we've seen is, man, social media has this great potential for good, and it's just this great potential for cool stuff. Like today, you're gonna to see pictures of people's moms, and you're gonna see you're gonna read tributes of people talking about how awesome their mom is, or or, or you're gonna see old pictures, and it's gonna be great. And you're gonna like it, you're gonna love it. You might hug it. It'll be great. It'll be good. And so there's potential for really good things with having 24/7 access to social media in our back pockets. But there's other, this other thing that happened. I want to talk about two effects of social media. And the first is a false sense of reality that it creates. We have this steady stream of all this great stuff that's happening online. And on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock, when you're down in the muck and the mire of life, maybe you're at home trying to get a child to take a nap, Or maybe you're at the office and you're trying to move a project forward. Or you're just in the middle of junk, right? Because I think junk normally happens at about 2 o'clock on Tuesdays. You're just in the middle of the muck and the mire of all kinds of stuff. And you take a break because you have this thing in your back pocket. And you begin to pull up social media. And you see all these people with these perfect children. And you see all these people with these perfect homes. And you see all these people with these perfect families. And you see all these people who are getting promoted and they're getting new jobs and they're making more money than you. And you just, it's this constant stream of people who have it way better than you at two o'clock on a Tuesday. And so there's this perception that why isn't my life like that? Life is perfect for them at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday. Why is it so bad for me? And so there's this false sense of reality that is created, this this virtual perception of, of how people are living these perfect lives. And then we begin to judge our ordinary life by this impossible standard. Have you felt that happening? Just know that it happens. Know that it happens. There's this other thing that's happening. That's that's number one, perception versus reality. There's this other thing that happens, and we know this. We know enough about social media to know this, is that early on, they had to figure out how to make money on it. They had to figure out how to monetize it. And they figured out that cute videos of cats or pictures of people's moms or all the warm, fuzzy stuff that happens— doesn't make near as much money, i.e. clicks, likes, and shares, as things that make you angry. Things that make you angry, things that make you upset, things that outrage you, those get more clicks, likes, and shares. Because at the heart of what it means to be human is this desire to protect and this sense to have a keen awareness of fear and what is a threat to me. And so I'm going to interact at a higher level with something that I perceive to be a threat. And so if it makes me angry or upset or outrage, or, or if it outrages me, I'm going to click, like, or share it more. It's going to create more money for the company. And we know these are how the algorithms are created. Consequently, you know what's happened in our world? We don't trust one another. We're afraid of one another. Um, There was a time in which we knew our neighbors. The people closest to us were people who were in close geographical proximity to us. But but in in some ways, social media has created what sociologists are calling these micro-tribes or these virtual tribes. And it's people online that they're afraid of the same things I'm afraid of. And they're outraged at the same things that I'm outraged at. And I finally found my people. And, and this, this small group of people that I connect with online, they, they live in places all around the world even, but I have found my people. That's not your people? That's not your people? That's a, that's a, 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 a social experiment of, of a, rage and anger all in the same place. You know who your people are? Your people are the people across the street from you and the people you go to church with and the, the people that your kids go to the same schools. And so communities are becoming fragmented and we're not connecting with people who we're in close geographic proximity with and it's, it's tearing us apart. We're finding our people centered around anger and outrage. And you know... Sometimes this anger and outrage is mobilized in real life. Sometimes it has an effect. I'll share a few examples with you. Uh, about 10 years ago, we watched an event happen in the Middle East a little more than 10 years ago, called the Arab Spring. And, and you saw people living in oppressive regimes and in dictatorships throughout the Middle East. They begin to throw this off. They begin to resist this. You saw this revolution begin to happen. In, in places uh, in the Middle East and around the Mediterranean, North Africa. Um, and this, this political movement was called the Arab Spring. And, and it had an effect for a while. It was able to replace authoritarian dictatorships with some kind of, of alternative government. And it, was largely, it largely happened because people were connecting on social media. And so this anger and this rage produced this revolution, but after the revolution, when it came time to govern, and when it came time to bring people together so that you could accomplish something, there was a vacuum, And, and, and that wasn't able to happen. So moving something towards an intended goal or something that was good and beautiful and true, there wasn't the mutual trust necessary for that to happen with diverse groups of people. In some ways, we saw this happen in 2020 as people became outraged with racial injustice. Rightly so, by the way, with racial injustice in, in America. We saw a movement, a reckoning in America. But has there been something productive and sustainable that come out of that? We saw this happen on January 6th as a violent mob overthrew United States Congress, in the middle of official proceedings. Social media largely contributed to getting a whole group of people that were mad together in the same place to accomplish what goal, to what end. And so what we see happening in our world is anger and rage being mobilized. But that will never build community. What does Jesus say? As a people, as a people who are built on the rock. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And what does he say? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who is the church? The church is that community of people who have found their identity, not in their rage, not in their anger, not in their Pinterest perfect life. They have found their identity in Christ This way of the cross, this way of suffering, this way of love for neighbor. They have found their identity in that. And they have said, this is the most important thing in my life. I'm going to love like Jesus loves. I'm going to speak like Jesus. I'm going to be a neighbor to those around me. This is who I am. I am a child of God. This is what it means to be a child of God. And this is this goal or this vision of beloved community. Is, is what motivates and, and the church. And Jesus says, when you get a people together like that, when you get a people who find their identity in me, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, that's good news for a broken and a fragmented world. As we think about who we're called to be, friends, a people committed to their shared identity as the beloved of God, they are a force for good that no one can stop. They're a force for good that no one can stop. And so, we, we, we hear this call to not be defined by other expectations, to not be defined by preconceptions. We hear this call to be defined by our identity in Christ. Who we are in Christ, this way of living, this way of love, this is who we are called to be. How is that identity forged? It is forged through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus.